The Melting Pot. Hosted by Dominic Munkas. This is Dominic Munkas. Today I am interviewing Henry Stewart, the author of the book The Happy Manifesto. I'm going to talk to him today about some of the things that he sees as being really important inside organisations, things that, are, that need to be done differently to create a happy workplace, to create a workplace where people are engaged and productive. Trust your people, we'll talk about pre-approval, selecting managers who are good at managing, but some of the others that I urge you to have a look at the book to understand more deeply, recruit for attitude, train for skill, openness and transparency, and get a work-life balance. But now, here's Henry. I'm Henry Stewart. I'm Chief Happiness Officer of Happy Limited, which is a training and consultancy provider in, in London. And what we do is we help organisations create happy workplaces. <laughs> Thank you, Henry. Chief Happiness Officer, why, why are you not the CEO? Well, I was CEO for a long time. And then I came across Alex Kedgerol from Copenhagen, who called himself Chief Happiness Officer. And I thought that should be the role. The role is to enable, it's to create a happy workplace where people feel fulfilled. So I changed my title to Chief Happiness Officer. And did you change any of your job at the same time? Oh, that's a good question. Not explicitly, but it has, inevitably, it changes the focus. Because every time I introduce myself as Chief Happiness Officer, I have to think about Am I succeeding in creating a happy workplace? Am I creating that culture? So I think things have changed as a result of it, yes. Okay. Um, there's a couple of things I want to try and explore with you, if we can, today. Um, one is that you don't have any managers that are happy. And one of the things I've been trying to do on the podcast is talk to people who think differently and act differently about business. And, and not having managers would be quite different okay that's well we don't have managers we have what we call a what we call coordinators what you don't want is people who tell people what to do and think they're the expert yeah however most people if you leave them completely to their own devices feel a bit lost and a bit unsupported so we do have people whose role is very simple is whose role is to coach and people are most of our staff will meet every couple of weeks with that person and they'll have a half hour coaching session they will have an annual appraisal with them. But the actual key difference isn't so much that we don't have managers because we have a different form of that, but that we let people choose who is their coordinator. I believe very strongly that people should be able to choose their managers. And so how does that fit, that structure fit with a typical organisational chart? Well, if you have a very hierarchical chart where you're managed by so-and-so, is managed by so-and-so, is managed by so-and-so, then it is difficult to fit it. But actually, an awful lot of organisations don't have that kind of chart. So take, for instance, Ernst Young. Mm-hmm. Um, at Ernst Young, you go and work on projects as a project manager, but you have a long-term counsellor who provides your support, who coaches you and carries out your appraisal. And there again, you can choose who that is. And most organizations have some form of matrix or projects or things like that. If you're still stuck with that old hierarchy, then it's time to change it because it doesn't work. What if you, if you want to be a coach and nobody wants you? <laughs> then you don't get to be a coach. <laughs> we might, well, 
we would help you. We would, help, if you want to be a coach, you, we would help develop you, help support you. Um, but if nobody wants you, then tough. It's like at WL Gore. If you want to be a leader, you have to find some followers. If nobody thinks you're going to be a good coach for them, then tough. You know, you find something else to do. And, and so, are some people not overwhelmed? We do have a kind of limit, which is somewhere around eight to ten. People can be full. But the key point is, in most organisations, if you look around them, you will see people in leadership and management positions who simply don't know how to manage people. If you look at Gallup, they reckon 10% of the population are natural managers. Another 20% can be taught how to manage people, and you should forget the rest. Now, that may be, I don't know, 70%, it's a lot, but in most organisations, there are people there who would love to be able to give up the management people position. Let's take an example. Say you're a coder at Google. And you're a brilliant coder, and you've been there a long time, and at most organizations, be made coding manager. Wouldn't happen at Google, partly because it's probably not your skill set, and partly because if you're a brilliant coder, then let's get you coding all the time, because that's what you're great at. We're a great believer in helping people play to their strengths. And for a lot of people, their strength is not managing people. But that shouldn't get in the way of them getting promoted, paid a lot of money, and doing a great job. And enjoying what they do. And enjoying what they do. Absolutely. Because we believe that people should have joy at work. My colleague Kathy reckons she gets joy in 95% of the work she does at Happy. And her aim is for her team to get joy in their work eight, at least 80% of the time. And how we ensure that is by helping them to do stuff they're good at and giving them the freedom to do it well. Fab. And there's some other things that I've stolen from you over the years. One of which is pre-approved. The best example of that is that uh, whilst I was at Pier 1, the staff decided that my idea of windbreaks were pointless and that the company would do much better if it had its own pub in the office. And as their involvement was under sort of the happy manifesto principles, any decision they came up with was obviously pre-approved. Could you tell me more about how you ended up with this well, maybe you could just tell me, go back to the beginning and, and tell me a bit about the happy manifesto and why, why you thought there had to be a manifesto and then, and then we can jump into one or two of the, the specifics. The happy manifesto is a book, a book I wrote to put the argument that people work best and they feel good about themselves and that happy workplaces are more productive. They're better for everyone. They're better for the organisations and they're better for the people that work in them. I mean, to put it simply, what people don't like is they don't like being told what to do, micromanaged, blame cultures, right? We've all been there. We all hate it. What they do like is to be doing something they're good at, playing to their strengths, having the freedom to do it well, having managers who coach rather than tell, and no blame culture. In, in, in our view, you should celebrate mistakes and flexible working and create all that and you'll create a great place to work. And specifically on pre-approval, one of the stories that, that really tells it is many years ago, a trainer sent me an email saying, I love these three things you've done to make my life easier. And I looked at the three things. And the first thing I noticed was I had no idea that happened because um, <laughs> they hadn't come across my desk for approval. But then I noticed if they had come across my desk, I'd have rejected two of them because I set up most of the ways of doing things that happy. I use my best thinking and I reckon my thinking is pretty good. So I'm a natural barrier to change, like nearly all managers. The moment you start improving it, start changing those proposals, it takes away the ownership. You know, have you, you know, think about times in the past when 
you've put your best idea up to your manager and they've improved it. You know, it's not a great experience normally. So I realized the only way to get out of this, because inevitably it comes across my desk, I want to do that, was to make sure it didn't come across my desk. So what we do now is we approve the solution before they've thought of it. So the idea is instead of somebody coming up with a proposal or a solution or some new way of doing something and bring it back for approval, we approve that at the beginning. The key is you have to have clear guidelines, budget, timescale, all of these things agreed, and then you leave them to it. And wonderful results happen. The, the classic one was our website, which I'd been very involved in before because it's vital to happy. So I'd always been suggesting maybe we should have this or that or do that. So the person in charge of the website never really felt in charge of the website. So we put Johnny in charge, and this time we decided we would pre-approve it. Now, that doesn't mean saying do whatever you like. Absolutely clear. It means, as I say, freedom within guidelines. So we agreed the guidelines. We agreed the metrics. It would be judged on how many people visited and how much income it generated. Johnny went on the best search engine optimization training we could find, so he had the skills. And also, one of the guidelines was Johnny had to be talking to the customers, to the users, to find out what they needed from the website. We didn't need to know what they'd said, but we needed to know that dialogue was happening. So I saw the website the night before it launched, when it was too late to do anything about it. It either went up or it didn't. And it was not what I expected. You know, that was looked at, but why is that there? Why is that there? What's that about? But it was completely within the guidelines. So I had no alternative. Up it went. And when we got the metrics a couple of months later, Business had trebled and income had doubled, <laughs> even without, even without the benefit of my expertise. <laughs> and so that's um, what we're, 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 we do all the time. At the moment, for instance, we have we are we're about to change the core IT system in the company, the booking system. And I've set some a couple of we've agreed some guidelines, but there's uh, five people off doing that. They will make the decision. I will at most just push and, and check their thinking. But they will make that decision, they will implement that, and that will that will that is the absolutely core system in the company, which I will not be involved in the decision of. Not not there to improve it. Certainly <laughs> not there to improve it. Yeah. And of course the interesting thing about your observation on the website is that you would never have known that you were wrong. Absolutely. I would have carried on producing an interior website and have no idea. But I've just read General McKistol's was it team of teams? where he talks about they decided to delegate to the front line because they needed the quick response. And if they got it right 70% of the time, it was probably okay. And what they found was that they actually got it right more often than he would have. Because they were, they were close to the action, they knew what was going on, and not only were they able to respond quickly, but they, they made better decisions. And it's so interesting, isn't it? Because when you talk to, to managers or leaders about, about those two things, you might not be able to persuade them that the front line would make better decisions, whereas you, you, and I, you and I know that that's often the case, but that's often you're not going to get them to agree that their expertise is not really that relevant or, or that valuable. But what you often persuade them is that the speed of response is the, is the key thing, and you can get them to agree to allow more decisions to be pushed to the front line based on speed of response and the importance that that might have. I mean, in terms of fighting troops to, to loss, but to customers in other organisations. Yeah, and actually, you know, I, I'm not natural at this. You know, I, I have quite a high opinion of myself, Dom. I think I'm ever so clever. <laughs> I think I'm quite brilliant at times. So, you know, how could Edward make decisions as well as I did, you know? But over the years, I've come to be a little more humble because I realise they do. 
you know, I'm wrong a lot of the time and they're right a lot of the time. I was going to say there are, t- there are two things that occur to me. One is that obviously it has a positive impact on the employee's uh, self-belief because you're, you're giving them the authority to do it. So people go, okay, they trust me. But also, is there, a, is there a thing where people do better work because it's not going to be second-guessed? Absolutely. You, you put all your energy into making it work, not into the politics and whether so-and-so will approve it and how we have to pitch it. And so much effort in most companies goes into, into getting things approved and, the, and all of that internal stuff. Now, let me give you another example of it from a, a, client of our, a little client of ours uh, in Cheltenham, which you may have heard of, called GCHQ. And they started doing pre-approval and they took it a step further. They need to be at the forefront of technology, right? Because they're, you know, they need to be at the forefront of everything going on uh, on the internet. So they managed to get a million pound budget from their bosses. And they set up a crowdfunding site where you could say, I need 5,000 for this or 200 pounds for that or 10,000 pounds for that. Now, in most organizations, once you've got all the ideas up, who would make the decisions? It would be the directors, wouldn't it? The managers would Hmm. make the decisions. What they did was they split up the million pounds into 100 sets of 10,000 pounds and gave it to the most junior people in the organization to make the decision. People, you had to have never managed a budget, never managed a person, and then you got 10,000 pounds to spend on something innovative. Not, you know, your own thing, something on the, on the, on the site. So a colleague of mine had a 10,000 pounds idea for a new piece of technology to improve communication. In the past, it would have taken five levels of approval to get that agreed. And he probably wouldn't have bothered. It was too much trouble. With a new system, it got, uh, got funded within a week by all these colleagues around the, around the organization, and he implemented it within two weeks. And just think of that. No faff, no waste of time. You get a great idea, you can put it into practice. That's the difference if you start to trust your frontline people. Of the other nine points on your manifesto which is the next or it, uh, assuming that that one's quite the one we've been talking about is quite contentious what what do you think is the the next most contentious one or the the one where you get the most pushback okay so what have we got well, number one trust your people that's one that people agree with in principle but never manage to do so that is about the pre-approval and just let but crucially within guidelines everything it's not about saying do whatever you like there's making your people feel good. When I ask people if people work best when they feel good, less than 1% disagree. You know, I often ask as an organization, okay, how many of you is that the focus of management? We all agree that's what makes people work best. How many is it the focus of management? Normally, about one in 50 put their hand up. But I was on the panel with a chair of one of Britain's biggest retail organizations who put his hand straight in the air and said, yes, in my 90,000 strong company, that is the focus. Can you guess which, which retail company it was? John Lewis. Absolutely. Spot on. And he, he explained, Charlie Mayhew, who explained how at the last board meeting they spent 20 minutes discussing the numbers and three hours discussing people and how to motivate them. So think, is in your organization, is there a five to one ratio? Well, that's actually more than five to one. Five to one ratio, five times as much time on people as on numbers. There should be. At John Lewis, it was set up by Sped and Lewis in the 1930s. And at the core of the Constitution is the statement that every decision must be based on how happy it makes the staff. And it's on that basis that John Lewis grew from a couple of stores to the giant that it is today. So we've got that. We've got freedom within guidelines. 
celebrate mistakes. That's that's always one that people love. That's occasionally conscientious. Yeah, do you reckon? Uh, I suppose they don't disagree, but I think often they people find it difficult to understand why why there would be a benefit to that. Right. Because <laughs> my first question is, do we want mistakes? And actually, most people say, well, yeah, actually, kind of, we do. Because let's say I've, I've I've turned up, you know, I'm, I've worked somewhere three months. I go to my probation thing and I say, I've been here three months and I've made no mistakes. What do you think? How would you, what would you think, Dom, in response to that? Well, I would think you haven't been trying very hard, but then if you're an air traffic controller, maybe that's a good thing. <laughs> well, this is an interesting. I mean, <laughs> let's take aerospace and health, right? Yeah. Um, a friend of mine made a program radio on BBC uh, Radio 4 on this last year, this very subject. And in aerospace, there is a real focus on, on no blame. When there's a crash, it's not about who's to blame, it's about what's wrong with the system. And as a result of that being consistent the case over, over decades, if you get an airplane nowadays, the chance of crashing are one in eight million. Take health, it's not the same. For all people trying to change it, even Jeremy Hunt, who I'm not a great fan of, but on this he's good, he's trying to create a no-blame culture. But we know from all the inquiries and the things that have gone wrong in the NHS, things get covered up and the problem happens again and again because people die in the NHS by mistake. But if you can't talk about that, if you can't talk about that without being blamed or whatever, it's going to happen again. Well, and, and also the, the sort of rise of, the, uh, of litigation nobody then managerially or culturally saying well we can't admit a failure because we'll be sued and and then that goes completely against the ability to try and fix that if that cultural issue exists it becomes impossible it becomes ingrained that that misperception is wrong if we, we do a lot of training with doctors and they're very clear that complaints very rarely have much to do with actual competence they have to do with attitude they have to do the, with the response. If you go and hit a brick wall and people aren't interested, then you complain. If you go and even if something terrible's happened and find somebody open and transparent and caring, you tend to not to complain. And that's what you want. You want openness. We had, we, you know, my family had one, to, one thing which nearly went very badly wrong. And when we went back, we just wanted to know, them to say, sorry, we got it wrong. Yeah, we weren't, we didn't want to sue them. We just wanted to know, sorry, we got it wrong. We're going to Try and make sure that doesn't happen again. And that's what we all want. One more. A key one is play to your strengths. Too often you get put into a job, and whether you're good at it or not, that's your job. That's your job, you said, you've got to do it. What we spend a lot of time at is working out what people are good at. And not even managers deciding, but nowadays, you know, if we've got a, a task to delegate, we don't say so-and-so do it. We give it to the team and say, who wants to do this? Who, who feels it plays less strength? Work out what you're good at and do more of it, because too often we have our strengths and our weaknesses, and then it's, oh, well, you better work your weaknesses. No, you shouldn't. Forget the weaknesses. Try not to do that kind of stuff, and work on your strengths. Get great at them. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree. I completely agree. There are many things I'm totally rubbish at, and nobody should, nobody should be relying on me to do any of those. I, and, every, and every time I know, every time... There's somebody who loves to do that. I mean, the whole tenant of the Gallup strength stuff is there's somebody out there who really, really likes to do this and is equipped to do it, so you should just go find them to do that. And the whole idea of putting a team together. I think I might have got that one from you. <laughs> yeah. 
I think you introduced us to Strength Finder, actually, Dom, yeah, many years yeah. ago. I'm glad one's come back the other way. Henry, before I let you go, on your crusade to make the world a better place one person at a time, there's one last question I'd like to ask you, which is, if you could start all over again, what's the one thing you would do differently? Take more risks and make more mistakes. Henry, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you, Dob. The Melting Pot was hosted by Dominic Monkhouse. And you can find out more about Dom on LinkedIn. Just search for Dominic Monkhouse or his companies, Foundry Media or Foundry 51.